Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative, with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash yourself and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. All that you say, I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of the grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lie down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. Who are you? I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning, if he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she laid at his feet until morning, but arose before one could recognize another. Let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. Bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it, and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went to the city, and when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all the, the man had done for her. These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest but we'll settle the matter today. We light this candle today as we await the coming of our Lord in whom we have our hope. Please bow your hearts in prayer with me. Father, There are so many things in our weeks, at work, in our homes that give us reasons for pause or fear and great concern. And, and sometimes, God, it gets really hard to trust you. And I, I repent of my, my own times where I, I tried to take things into my own hands and figure it out myself instead of relying on you. Father, we ask that through your word this morning, you would help us to see the subtle ways that you are at work that, that seem subtle but are, are really quite significant. God, open our eyes to the weight of your promises 
open our hearts to how trustworthy you are. And by your grace, Lord, would you give us strength and give us a sense of rejoicing in the sureness of our hope. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, in, in the greatest movie ever released, May 24th, 1989, our hero, the great Indiana Jones, if you didn't have a moment of like, oh yeah, this is going to be good, then you're, you need to check yourself. Is Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, and if you haven't seen it, this is going to be a complete spoiler but you can't get mad because the movie's been out for like 25 years. And so you can't be like, hey, I was going to watch that later because you weren't. Um, but toward the end of the movie, Indiana is decoding a series of riddles in a book he found somewhere that are loosely based on Christianity. And he's decoding these riddles to find a special chalice that Jesus wants to use so he can heal his father. I mean, the plot holds up. And he... He comes to a point where he is at a, he comes through an opening in the rock and he's at a sheer cliff and across a chasm is another sheer cliff with another opening and the clue is to leap. He goes, well, no one could make that jump. And then he realizes, ah, it's a leap of faith. And so he, he takes a fateful step and finds a firmly solid, invisible bridge in front of him. And he walks across. And it, there's this moment where he is getting ready to step and his eyes are closed and, he, and, and you can see that he's all in hoping there's going to be something under his feet. And if he doesn't find anything under his feet, it's going to look a lot like the Wile E. Coyote cartoons. But he's, he's all in on this hope there's going to be something based on something he read in a book and hoping he got it right. And there's a lot of times for us when trusting God can feel a little similar to this. I read this. I, I believe this is telling me something about Jesus that I can trust and in order for me to do it, it means I'm going to have to step out and hope there's something down there that's going to keep me up. And, and whatever that, that step of faith looks like, whether it's repentance of your own sin, forgiving someone else for their sin against you, practicing self-control, having grace-filled accountability in your life, finding healing from grief, whatever that step is, we find ourselves in moments where it feels like we're stepping off a cliff, hoping we don't end like Wile E. Coyote in the cartoons. And what we see as we either observe other people doing that or do that ourselves, what we encounter is the reality that trusting God is not a sedentary action. And a lot of times trusting God is, is going through our life doing that, realizing that God said he would provide, and I don't know what that means, but I need to go up and do something, and I'm going to trust that God will provide in this. And so we, we move trusting that God will provide. 
I know what I did yesterday, last week, this morning is terrible. And, and God says that if I repent, he'll cleanse me of my unrighteousness. And so I'm not going to try and work this off as though I have the ability to clean my own sin from my soul. But I'm going to repent of my sin and trust. I have a family member facing this illness and I know that or facing an insurmountable circumstance and I know if I pray to God, his word says he'll hear me. So I don't know what else to do but in the loneliness of this room I'm in, cry out to God and hope he hears me so I'm going to do that. And our trust is that God will hear, that God will act. We trust in God when we do these things. And the difference between status quo and or regression, the difference between those and growth, transformation, and healing, oftentimes, if not always, comes down to, to one simple question. Do you, do you trust God with this? Do you trust God? Are you willing to work? Are you willing to walk in the ways that Scripture says He works? And as we go to Scripture, we see God over and over again as trustworthy. We see His character and nature as a God who is kind and sovereign and holy and good and gracious. And they, His character and nature lead us to trust. And the longer we walk with God, the more clear these things become. And there's a simplicity to saying, I know this about God, so I'm going to trust Him. And I'm going to give myself to this. And as we pick up in Ruth 3, we, we see Naomi and Ruth finding the kindness and provision of God in a way that leads them to hope. And the kindness and provision of God are realized for Naomi and Ruth First of all, through trusting his word. Now, Naomi here has made a bit of a transition. We had her go from chapter one where she said, I'm bitter, God has dealt bitterly with me, my name is Mara, to chapter two, rejoicing that uh, Ruth has found favor, not just favor in the eyes of anyone, but Boaz, who is their kinsman redeemer, to now Naomi has become a caregiver. She's, she's gone from the being in great need of care to becoming the caregiver where she is able to minister in a way to Ruth. And she says to Ruth, my daughter, should I not seek rest for you? Now, Naomi is not healed of her grief from losing her husband and sons at this point. But her, her initiative to care for Ruth demonstrates something. It demonstrates this. If, if we wait until we have everything together before we minister to others, we might never minister. And there's a value in being ministered, by someone, being ministered to by someone who doesn't yet have their whole life figured out. Because it tells me I don't have to have my whole life figured out. 
And so we, and part of trusting God is saying, God, I don't know everything, but I know you do, so I'm going to take steps towards you. And there, there are times that we may need to, for reasons of grief, despair, deep trial, take a season off from ministry. And it's okay to take a season off, but let's never feel like we have to wait until our life is perfect to start ministering to people. And so Naomi has taken steps, and her steps is a desire for Ruth. And not just for Ruth to have kids, like that's part of it. And the kinsman redeemer idea, what this was, was if you have multiple sons and one son dies and he hasn't had kids yet, he's married, they haven't had kids yet, then the next son would provide children for that, for that woman to, to uh, carry on the name of his brother. That was the idea of the kinsman redeemer. Naomi is not going after children to carry on the name of Malon, her son. She is going after more. She says that you may have seeking rest for Ruth. Should I not seek rest for you, that it will be well for you. For Ruth to have security, stability, that lasts past even the best harvest, no matter how generous the landowner may be. I mean, Naomi and Ruth are getting a lot of food here from Boaz. And it'll probably last them to some point next summer from this harvest season. She is looking for a lasting rest for Ruth. And so she gives this instruction. And the first thing she says is, hey, go wash yourself. Like this was, like hygiene was not at the top of the list in this time. Ruth has been out working in the field all day, every day. Uh, they, didn't, they didn't have deodorant. They didn't have running water. So you can imagine uh, it, it was a bit ripe. So she says, go wash and then put on perfume. Then she says, and, and put on your cloak. And it's this idea that, that what, what some commentators are saying here is that Ruth was likely up to this point still wearing uh, like widow's clothes, wearing clothing that signaled to everyone, I'm a grieving widow. And even while she's working in the field, signaling to everyone, I'm a grieving widow. And she's saying, no, go put on your good cloak. Get washed up, go put on your good cloak, and then go find Boaz at the threshing floor. Go find him at the place where they're, where they're cleaning out all their grain. This would have been probably on a hillside, outside of town, and, and what the harvesters would have been working hard to beat out all the chaff, let the wind drive it away, and they would have had all these piles of grain, and they would have slept out there, partly from exhaustion, and then partly for security, so no one came and stole their grain, and to keep animals from coming and stealing their grain. So go find him out there, wait till he's asleep, uncover his feet, lay at his feet, and then do whatever he tells you. Naomi's instruction here is a bit promiscuous. All the words that she's using here in her words to, to, uh, to Ruth have a little bit of an innuendo to them. Uncovering the legs, laying at his feet. There's a little bit of innuendo sewed in here. 
And there's a little bit of risk to that. Boaz is a worthy man. He's an honorable man. We saw in chapter 2, he refused to let anyone take advantage of Ruth. So what's he going to do when Ruth comes and lays at his feet? This is the behavior. This was having a woman come and lay at your feet while you're out there was common. And those women were what we would call women of the night. Pursuing a client. How would Boaz, the worthy man, treat this encounter? She knows he's the kinsman redeemer. And she's telling Ruth, go, get cleaned up, get a little dolled up, go find him, and then do what he says. And so Ruth, the next thing we see is Ruth's action. She does this. She went and got cleaned up. She put on this cloak. She went to the threshing floors. Her mother-in-law had commanded her. When Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he lied down at the end of the heap of grain. And he cashes out. And Ruth comes. She uncovers his feet. She lays down. And I cannot imagine the startle that Boaz had. But there was the risk here. There was, she's risking the communal uh, reputation of herself, the communal reputation of Boaz, her relationship with Boaz. What if he doesn't appreciate this? What if he proves to be not so honorable after all when no one is looking? Our character is defined by what we do when no one's looking. This is a bit of a true test of Boaz's character. But it's interesting here, Ruth doesn't trust her fear. We don't even see a place of her fear here. Ruth follows Naomi's instruction. Na Ruth is new to walking with God. At most, she's a month or two into this time of living with Bethlehem, living in Bethlehem. She's new to walking with God. And she's heard what Naomi has said about kinsman redeemer. And, and all of her discipleship, if you want to call it that, is coming from Naomi. And so she does this. And her, and her trusting of Naomi is also seen as a trusting of Naomi's God. How is God going to provide for us in this? Will God provide me rest when I, when I do this? Is this the way to do it? And she trusted her new God more than she trusted her fear. And she's still learning God's word. So she gets dressed up and she finds him. And then she makes this request. She lay at his feet. He wakes. Who is this? I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. She's asking in part for the provision of a child from Boaz. But she's also, in a kind of weird way, proposing to him. And there's a bit of presumption in her ask. And her presumption is based on her current state. She's a woman in need, she's a widow. 
They don't have a lot of money. They've had this steady stream of grain from helping out with, from, from being a gleaner in Boaz's fields. She's also presuming on her ongoing need. This need isn't going to go away with one harvest. I'm not set for life here on barley and wheat. It didn't hit the barley lottery. And she's presuming on God's word that God has commanded this. Boaz is a man of God. I'm going to presume on his obedience to God's word. And she's presuming on what she knows of Boaz. Boaz is a good man. He's a kind man. He's a worthy man, honorable. She's presuming on all of that when she asks him. When we pray, are we as bold as Ruth? Or do our requests become a lot more subtle and almost passive? I don't know, God, you know, if you're not doing anything, uh, maybe you could stop by on Tuesday and, I don't know, heal me of cancer. I don't know, God, if you're not doing anything, could you, if you don't have anything better to do, God, could you just help me evangelize to my neighbors? Could you, uh, I don't know, could you help my kids walk with you, you know, if you don't have anything better going on. I don't think any of us actually pray that way. That would be a little ridiculous, you know, making sure God has a clear calendar before he, you know, he, it's not like he has anything else on his plate. But do we presume on God's character and nature when we come to him? God, you are holy. God, you are sovereign over everything in my life. God, you have been so kind to me and so generous in saving me by your grace. God, you knit me together in my mother's womb and you knit my family member together in their mother's womb and you can heal them. God, you can draw all people to yourself and I know it's your desire to do so. God, you own the cattle on a thousand hills and I don't know how I'm paying my bills next month. When you read the Psalms and these prayers, I want you to notice how the psalmist appeals to God's character and nature. How he points to the worthiness of God. He worships God as he prays. God, I have this need and you, almighty God, Lord of hosts, are the one able to do something about it. God, I feel forgotten, and I know that you are not a God who forgets. As you read the Psalms, track how the psalmist uses God's character and nature along with his requests. Let's presume on our God in a right way. Look at who he is. Get to know him and ask boldly. Ruth's ask was based large in part on who Boaz was through her relationship with him already and through his character. And we ought to do the same when we ask of God our Father. Know his character and nature. Know the relationship that he has adopted you, that, he, that Jesus holds you in his hand and no one can take you out. And let us pray with that confidence, trusting God based on his word. And trusting his word more than our circumstance. 
The next thing we see here in God's kindness and provision is his active work, the active work of God. Now, again, this is something, we've talked about this with Ruth. We never see in Ruth, and then Lord did this, and then the Lord did this, and then the Lord told Boaz, Boaz, you better, do, you better be kind to Ruth. And then we don't see that. The active work of God is displayed in subtlety in the book of Ruth. And so many times, we, we talked about this last week, so many times the active work of God in our life as we are experiencing it in the moment feels subtle and as we look in the rearview mirror is significant. Boy, two years ago I was going through this trial. I never thought I'd get through and I, and I don't know how I got day to day but as I look back I can see God's handiwork through it time and time again. I didn't know what was going to happen with my marriage, and God rescued it. I didn't know how I was going to get through that transition at work. I didn't think that neighbor was ever going to come to Christ. And look what God did, and we see it more clearly as we look back than we do as we look around us and through the windshield. And so as, as Boaz starts talking, we see the active work of God through what Boaz is doing. And he starts out with a blessing. May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. Look at that kind, affectionate tone he has. For you have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now that it is true, I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning if he will redeem you, good. Let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. He blesses her. Her kindness to, he blesses her for her kindness. She did not pursue the cream of the crop as far as available bachelors go. Boaz was not like Bethlehem's most eligible bachelor. He would have been an older guy. He's a landowner. And, and Ruth was much younger than him. She didn't go after the, the young bucks in the town. She didn't go after the, whether rich because of the opportunity, like, hey, I'll be a trophy wife. I'll, I'll get all that money. She didn't go looking for a sugar daddy. She didn't go after romance. Hey, that guy has nothing, but I love him, so I'm willing to be poor because I love this guy so much. She didn't do any of that. She did what was right. And for Boaz, this is not a convenient thing to bless her and to say yes. It messes with his retirement portfolio. It's socially awkward. She's a Moabite. Although it's interesting that chapter 3 is the only chapter in all of Ruth where the word Moabite is not used. He's not treating her as a foreigner here. He's treating her as someone in need and someone who he can honor. And so he blesses her with his own kindness. He blesses her for her kindness. He gives the spiritual blessing. And he offers her, as part of this blessing, a, a foretaste of the rest that is coming for Ruth. Sleep until morning. This is done. You can start resting now. He gives her a foretaste of that rest. And then he honors her. 
He recognizes her reputation. He treats her with genuine respect and honor. Again, there's this opportunity. Ruth has come in a somewhat promiscuous way to Boaz. It's at night. Everyone else is sleeping. He can do whatever he wants, so to speak. But Boaz doesn't treat her like an object to take advantage of. Boaz treats her as a woman made in God's own likeness and affords her all the dignity due to that reality, even though the the opportunity for inappropriate intimacy is given. Boaz treats her with purity. The next thing he does is he sends her away in the morning when no one sees. Boaz is concerned for her reputation as a worthy woman. He sends her away at a time when everyone else is asleep, after giving her further rest, and helps her to leave with her reputation rightfully intact. He's not covering anything up, but he's refusing the opportunity for others to think ill of her. I don't want people to think that I've dishonored you. I don't want people to think that you've dishonored me. Boaz honors her. And for those of you who are in dating relationships or looking at entering dating relationships, I want you to realize what's going on here. There's so many opportunities in dating relationships to fulfill the lusts of your passion, of your flesh. And there's so much of the world saying, yeah, do that, or when are you going to do that? Or you really ought to do that. And Boaz wasn't willing for the world to think less of Ruth. Or less of himself, for that matter. There is a protection in honoring her and honoring her purity. And as you are in dating relationships, look for people who will protect your purity. As you are in dating relationships, protect the purity of other people. Don't use the secrecy of phones to violate people. Don't use the secrecy of late nights or empty houses to violate someone, but seek to honor them at every turn. Whoever it is that you're with in a relationship, they were made by God in his likeness for his purposes. Boaz honors her. And he also honors her by sending her continued supply. This is another foretaste. Ruth, I'm going to take care of you. And this grain that I'm protecting to protect my bottom line, here's some of it for your mother-in-law. He is honoring Ruth. He is honoring Naomi. And then he gives a promise. I'm not the closest redeemer, but if that guy won't do it, then I will. And as the Lord lives, I'll do it. Boaz is not wishy-washy at all. His yes is yes, and his no is no. He is completely in full integrity as he makes this promise. And his promise is in accordance with following God's word. 
Boaz cared more about following God's word than he did making Ruth feel good. Look, Ruth, I'm totally willing, but if I'm going to follow God's word, I need to check with this other guy first. And so I'm going to do that, but if he won't, I will. You are taken care of. He expresses his intent to honor. No matter what, you're going to be redeemed. Whether it's him or me, you're going to be redeemed. You don't need to worry about this. And he makes a promise that he can keep. Boaz's words are dripping with examples for us and how we help people and how we pursue romantic interests and how we ultimately honor God first and foremost. This is God's work. It's, it's a godly man doing godly things, keeping God's word. It's, it's God's work to build Boaz's character, bearing godly fruit in this relationship. It's the favor that God has provided Ruth with. God's active work in our lives is often seen in the work he's already done and continuing to do in the lives of those who trust him. And God is using Boaz, who's trusted him, to care for Ruth and Naomi. And he's using Naomi's trust in his word and Ruth's willingness and obedience to benefit them. Don't isolate yourself from help. If you're here this morning and you think, my problems are too substantial, there's no hope, I just want you to know that that's a lie. And you don't need to believe it anymore. Don't isolate yourself from help. And also, maybe you're here this morning and you have great ability to help. Don't hesitate. To help as God would have you. Know well the God who has saved you. Know well the God who has blessed you. Know his character and his nature. And be willing to be an extension of that to the people around you. So that more people may praise the Lord. So Ruth goes home. Gives the report to Naomi. And they are able to live in the hope of a promise given. So Naomi says, how'd you fare? How'd it go? Give me all the details. She told her all that had happened. And then Naomi says, verse 18, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Ruth and Naomi are operating with, a rear, with the rear view of faithfulness. They are looking at the rear view of of faithfulness, looking in that mirror and seeing who Boaz is, what he's done so far, seeing that surely God did visit his people in the fields and provide a harvest, and that same God is with us today. And, and when we think of the promises of God, we need to realize this is something God has said will happen for a lot, you know, I, I'm thinking the promise of heaven, the promise that one day every tongue, tribe, and nation will be glorifying Jesus around the throne together, the promise that one day Jesus is coming back and all things will be made new. As we look for those promises, 
as we look for the promises that God will heal my heart when I repent of my sin, let's realize the promise is God's word that just hasn't happened yet. It's going to happen. Boaz is going to settle this. And they are, they are confident of that. And our confidence in God should be that he is going to do this. Our confidence in God, as we look back at what God has done, it should be our fuel for patience as we await for the rest of his promises. What God has already done for us gives us fuel for patience so that as we have the forward view of his faithfulness, we have the rear view, rear, rear view a lot harder to say than I thought it would be. And then we have the forward view, what God hasn't done yet. This is what God has already done. It's giving me fuel to look at what God hasn't done yet. I wonder how long Ruth and Naomi waited for that knock on the door or whatever it was in Bethlehem. They didn't have phones, right? How, they waited for the word that Boaz had talked with them and here's how it played out. What did that feel like? I don't think the time went quick for him. Imagine there was a lot of looking out the window. Is anyone coming? Is that person coming to tell us? Is that person Boaz? No, it's not them. And just waiting and waiting and waiting, but, but waiting with a sureness. And waiting based on the goodness of the promise maker. Boaz is a good man. We wait with that. And the waiting takes a long time, but we wait knowing that he's a good man. And it creates a hope-filled waiting. There is a sureness to this that in the midst of the unfinished promise, the question was not if, but when. There's an unfinished promise. He's going to redeem us, but he hasn't yet. You know, the Jewish people at this time, this was in the time of Judges, this was a very dark time. God, you've brought us into a promised land. We're getting harassed by our enemies on every side. We have famine, we have wars. When are we going to have the peace of being in this land, God, that you promised us? And we see at the end of Ruth, what we're going to see next week is this weird genealogy that actually goes forward to David, to the king who would set the boundaries, to the king who would bring peace, to the king who would reign well. And then after David died, there was this longing in the people again. When are we going to have a king like that again? When are we going to have a king? Who's just again? When are we going to have a king who brings us to God himself again? And they were waiting for the new and better David, the one who would sit on the throne forever, who is Jesus. And he came in an unlikely way, born as a baby, and now we wait. Jesus, we know you're coming back, but when? Jesus' life is hard, and we echo in the call at the end of Revelation, come, Lord Jesus. 
We don't say it with a, are you coming? We say, when are you coming? Please come soon. And it is a sureness because when we look in the rear view mirror, we see a God who's always been faithful, who always keeps his promises. And we know that the promise that Jesus is coming back is being kept. And we will one day see it. There's a strange anticipation that happens building up to Christmas morning. You have geometric figures obscured by paper under a tree. And you think you know what's in them. And you're pretty sure you're going to like it. And sometimes you know exactly what's in it. And you can't wait to open it. Oh, this is going to be good. I can't wait for that gift to be seen in full and to be able to start using all that that gift has for me. A promise is given. It hasn't been completed. And while we wait, we wait with hope, knowing that it will. And so as you wait, trust God's word. Our flesh withers and fades like grass, but God's word stands forever. Honor the people around you to the highest level you're capable of and live in hope based not on knowing when things will happen, but knowing that they will. Knowing that God keeps His promises. He is a good God. He is ever true. Let's pray. God, we praise You. We praise You that we can have hope, that we can have sureness, because You keep Your Word. You do not rest. You do not slumber. You hear our prayers. And God, we, we rarely... Anticipate how you move, but we know you will. God, I pray that you would, you would build that sureness into our hearts. Maybe we're here echoing the, 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 the words of a father that your son talked to where he says, I believe, help my unbelief. Father, would you help our unbelief? Thank you that you're a good God that we can trust and that you are trustworthy. Amen.